Welcome to the Finding Sustainability Podcast. This is Stefan Partolo, and today I'm talking with Kai Whiting. Kai is a researcher and lecturer in sustainability and stoicism at the University of Lisbon in Portugal. Kai aims to connect stoic principles to help answer the why questions in relation to our challenges in the 21st century. We discuss a variety of topics, including how stoic values can help understand sustainability problems, but also how they can help reform academia. So please welcome Kai Whiting. Kai, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been I've been pretty excited about this actually having you on because since I I'm not sure actually where I first saw your material, maybe it was through Twitter or something like this, and I watched your your talk. I think it was at the Stoicon conference. Um, was it 2018? It must have been one that's on YouTube yeah, from 2018. Correct. And I had a look at that, and I thought it's pretty that's pretty interesting because something that I'm interested in or that I've been thinking a lot about lately is the integration more of uh, philosophical aspects into sustainability. I think sustainability has been, it's been a lot, not dominated is the wrong word, but it's been shaped a lot through ecologists and through natural resource management and, and this perspective. And it's, it's now getting more into the social sciences and economics and stuff like this, but you don't hear too much about sustainability in the modern view uh, from a philosophical perspective. And I was quite excited when, when I saw that you're connecting stoicism and sustainability. So I want to get into it. And I want to probably first uh, where to start is to just to hear a little bit more about your background and maybe your educational background or anything you think is relevant that has led you up to this current focus that you have now. So I'm based at the University of Lisbon in Portugal, and I'm quite strange for like a person who dabbles in philosophy in a sense that I'm in the mechanical engineering department. And I come from that background because I felt that engineering was the way to approach sustainability problems. And it's certainly one way of approaching sustainability problems. But I felt that as an engineer, we were asking the questions, okay, how? So in the Stoic Con or the Stoicism Conference, the international one last year, I started to say, okay, it's excellent that we as engineers are asking how. How do I build that bridge? How long should I build the bridge? Where should I connect the two points from? But no one in engineering particularly asked, why should I build a bridge? Is this what we want? So in sustainability, we seem to talk about a lot about energy efficiency, but we don't ask us, maybe we shouldn't make it at all. The most efficient response is to say, is it necessary? Is it needed? Is it going to give us what society requires? not in just in terms of economics, but in terms of real sustainability. And if the answer is no, the most efficient way is to ne- not build it in the first place. And I found like engineering doesn't really ask those questions, which is okay. I mean, no discipline should ask every question or can ask every question. So philosophers don't ask how, they ask why. And then people say, oh, these people, they have nothing to contribute because they just sit and think all day. Well, that's not quite really, that's not right to say that. They're just asking a different question. And in engineering, I was like, I don't even have the answers because I don't even have the questions. I don't know from an engineering perspective, should I value a bridge? What value should I give it in, in terms of like societal value? Engineering doesn't answer those questions. It tells you how many, you know, the units, the weight, the cost, but not often or even at all. But do we need this? Is there not a better way? So I'll give you a silly example. We might say about carbon offsetting. Instead of asking about, okay, I want to fly, so let's carbon offset. That's an option. How should we do that? It's like, okay, shouldn't we improve our trains? They're the most efficient form of transport in in most cases. Maybe we should ask that question. So I just felt that as an engineer, I didn't have the tools I needed to approach, approach sustainability. And I thought philosophers didn't have all the tools they needed either. So I really wanted to straddle that gap and give everybody an opportunity to say, okay, I don't have all the answers because I don't have all the questions. But if I collaborate, there are so many people who have the bit of the puzzle that I need. And for me, sustainability is coming together and forging solutions, not as we do in academia, sit in our own little office and, and worry about what's going on in ecology or what's going on in climate science or what's going on in environmental engineering, my background, or what's going, in philosoph- going on in philosophy or social sciences. If we're going to come together as humanity, and really answer the problem of how do we deal with punctuation? and why should we deal with it? Why is it a problem? And we need all those questions answered. And we need to answer them together because we only have one piece of the puzzle each. Yes, thankfully in climate change or climate breakdown science, 
we are seeing that more and more people are collaborating, coming together, thanks to the IPCC. But it's not the only way that we can make change. I think we all need to be part of the debate because we all have some, at least some of the answers to the problem. We may not have caused the problem, but I think we all, you know, as in academia and in our daily life, we have the answer. Whether that's say, okay, I'll turn the thermostat down, or I won't buy this product, or it's like me, okay, I'm not going to just do calculations. I'm going to ask myself why I'm doing them in the first place. So uh, you kind of get this perspective that we we haven't focused too much on the why, or we've taken a lot of the why questions as fundamental assumptions about society, for example, that we're going to fly. We don't ask, for example, that we're going to fly, or we don't ask why we should manage a, a resource in a certain way, or how, why we should use resources. Why do you think that is? You know, why do you think we've had this disconnect and we've we've had this kind of momentum towards how, how, and how we can achieve things and not why? What, what's your perspective? That's a very difficult question. I, I would say at the moment, at the moment probably because of economics, is, has pitched itself as a science. And he did that with a very good reason. He wanted to be taken seriously. So we talk about flows. It was, flows because that was like physics. So if you look at the economic language back in like, 19th century it's very scientific it's not a sociological terminology because they wanted to get sort of they wanted to be people to be aware of how rigorous they were coming up with these rules as if they were scientific they talk about laws of economics not laws it's not like the law of gravity they're decisions that we make based on the values that we have right so when you emphasize even in your sociological approach scientific i mean when i say scientific language i mean natural science uh language of the natural sciences then you get a skew because you're actually saying something no it's you know it's not reasonable for me to come out from a hum humanist point point of view i need to be scientific i need to be objective we need to get away from the idea that we can be completely objective yes we should definitely try but we should also acknowledge that that is not possible because we have values and we you and i are born in certain countries and we are certain genders and we have certain certain things in our lives that we, we value because of who we are, because of how, how our parents shaped us. But in science, we say, no, we're objective. That's important. We're not going to ask about value. We're going to become more efficient because that is what science is. It's like, yeah, okay, maybe there are aspects of science, but science has value. Has values. It's not, it's not a God question. And we say, oh, no, if you're going to ask about the meaning of life, that's not science. Which I think is, is is the wrong way to go about it, but you can see why if academia is, is praising this, which it is, why we skewed it, why we said to people, well, if you have a if you're coming from a perspective, let's say you're coming from a gender gendered perspective, which we all do, but we tend to colour it a certain way if you're a feminist, then maybe you know that's not a very that's not a very objective point of view. That's not that's biased, isn't it? That's not really what we're looking for. Oh, look, your values are colouring your judgments. All our values colour our judgments. So we've tried to strip that away, which at the time, you know, you have to think about the perspective. You're coming from a situation of going, well, perhaps God isn't real, or perhaps the God that we believed in wasn't real, or perhaps the presumptions we had about God historically were wrong. So then people started to go in the opposite direction and say, you know, no, God doesn't give value, science gives value, and science is value neutral. And that's just not, that's just not correct. But I can understand. It's like when it's the problem of when you define yourself by your, the, of what you're not. So I'm not, say I'm not religious. Let's say that, let's say that. Okay. I'm not religious. When I make myself against God, I'm going to define my whole life and re meaning through my non-belief in God. And this is the problem when you start to define yourself as something you're not. So even econo economists and economics in general had to find this kind of structure, had to find legitimacy. In, a re in a, an arena where values were being undermined for good and for bad, because some of the values that we had were incorrect or uh, certainly marginalized a lot of people. So you can see where that's coming from, but we, it, I, I think it was a knee-jerk reaction. And I think even in sustainability, there's a lot of knee-jerk reactions. So for example, you might say, capitalism is terrible. Right? A lot of people say, that's terrible, that's the reason. It may well be the reason, it might be. It might be that the way the mechanisms that we use in neoliberalistic economics are, is the problem. It may not be capitalism at all. But because you say, oh, but well, then you're not left wing. So we start to, okay, well, because I don't believe like that capitalism necessarily or inherently is the problem by the way that we're doing it. That means that I'm not left wing. Again, I'm someone's then defining me based on something. Of that I disagree with or something that I'm saying well maybe it's not the case and this is what we need to get away from 
It's not like a polarity that needs to occur that if I don't believe this, therefore I am. Or if I am subjected, therefore I, therefore I don't know what I'm doing, therefore I'm not scientific. So I think that's part of the problem. And of course, it was a natural, it was the way that it was naturally progressing. But I think in the 21st century, we have to start saying to each other, no, you know, we should value this conversation. Just because you come from a different perspective doesn't mean that your perspective is wrong. And unfortunately in science, because in, in my opinion, white men dominated it, white men in the German and or Anglo-Saxon world, we only had one set of values. And then we said that those values, the German and British and American values, were the values that were value neutral. Probably because it's like the privilege. You can't say you're not privileged if you're white, middle class or straight because you can't see what privilege is. <laughs> you have no, no way of uh, checking or measuring yourself against what you're saying. And I think that's the problem. It wasn't that there were no values, that we ascribed one set of ideals to the valueless science. And that's not, that was not actually what was happening. Yeah, well, when I'm when I'm listening to this, I, I kind of hear two things which I want to unpack a little bit further. One is the normativity within scientific choices, and the other is normativity within the concept of sustainability. And I know that your your thinking is structured around stoicism, so it would it would be nice maybe to start first with kind of understanding stoicism a little bit better uh, from your perspective. You know, what is stoicism? Where does it where does the philosophy come from? And then maybe we can get into how that can help structuring how we think about the normativity within science and the normativity within concepts of sustainability, and then perhaps how stoicism and sustainability more broadly can connect to each other. Excellent. I'm glad you brought us back to that because we, we would have gone down a different path. But yes, <laughs> I think that, I mean, stoicism is, is really simple in the sense that it says there's only four virtues. And these four virtues are sufficient and the only guarantee for happiness. Four. So they say courage, justice, self-control, and wisdom. There is nothing else you need. And everyone says to me, what? You need nothing else? Nothing. No, you just need to be courageous. You just need to be just. You just need to be self-controlled and you need to be wise. And everyone at that point pulls their hair out and tells me I'm crazy. And they say, what about health? And I say, health is no guarantee of you being happy. What do you mean? I've met perfectly healthy, perfectly healthy in the normative sense, people who are really miserable, who who really don't don't see the blessings or or the luck that they have, depending on their you know their religious beliefs, of having two legs that function really well. If I took them away tomorrow, they would then realise they wouldn't necessarily be happy. They'd probably be really grumpy. Oh, I can't believe I have no legs. Well, when you, when you had them, you didn't use them. You were sitting there obese, for example, or you were sitting there not appreciating them and not doing not doing sports. So health is not a guarantee. We all know, all of us know, somebody who's wealthy who's miserable. So, okay, let me get you all the money in the world. Let me give you more. You are now the richest person in the world. Are you happy? There are some people who would, hopefully, you'd think, say, yes, but it wouldn't be necessarily because of the money, because if you believe that money makes you happy, then you can never have enough. We don't need to name names. We all know the names that think that they are the wealthiest and they are self-made men, typically. Of course, you know, they live in a vacuum and no one helped them. And they, they think they deserve it, and they think that that makes them happy. We, we know really miserable people who are wealthy. So wealth doesn't make you happy. So you say, what about fame? What about if I'm famous? Okay, we know many, and again, don't need to name names. Very sad stories. Rehab, suicide. Many, many people, a lot of them famous. Why? Because when they went home at the end of the night after a concert where they were loved and adored by millions or thousands, they were alone. Their family was in a different city. Their kids, they couldn't see them. So, so it wasn't fame. So they say, so you're telling me it's not wealth, it's not health, it's not fame. Why, why then do you think, because okay, I can, it's easy, it's easy to criticize, right? It's easy for me to go, yeah, it's not these things. Okay. Much harder for me to then uh, substantiate the claim I've just made. So why, why courage? Why, why justice? Why self-control? Why wisdom? I made the argument in Stoicism, the Stoicism Conference, Stoicon 2018, that this was sustainable development. Because the absence of courage, where we're all coward, where we don't say anything, we're too scared of politics or the politicians or our parents. Or we, if we don't say things, we're not going to live in a sustainable world because we're not going to stop people who are greedy, lack of self-control. We're not going to say to them, wait, this is wrong. You do not need seven cars. Right? There is an upper limit to what this wealth can bring you. Even if you know wealth doesn't make you happy, it does make life 
easier in terms of you know in terms of you being able to go A to B quicker. So if I don't have the courage to stand up to you, Stefan, and say I don't believe you should have seven cards. I just don't believe you need them. Then there will never be enough space on this planet, right? If I have a world of injustice, which you know in many parts of the world very unjust, how can we possibly have sustainable development? I mean, it it really cannot happen. I cannot see a world where injustice is prevalent, where people who are the poorest are paying the highest price for this climate breakdown or the pollution, air contamination. They're paying the highest price. That is an environmental injustice. I'm sure you spoke about it a lot on the podcast. So if I have a world of injustice, I cannot have sustainable development. If I do not know what to do, why I should do it, and how, I'm ignorant. And I could never, ever walk into that circle of sustainable development. And that's why I have always maintained, for the last year at least, this is the same as sustainable development. Modern, the modern terminology I would use for all those four virtues is that safe space between meeting everybody's needs and going beyond the thresholds of the planetary boundaries. That to me is the societal uh, level uh, of the four virtues. Of course, the four virtues of courage, justice, self-control, and wisdom are very personal. Stoicism is a personal philosophy. But what I'm showing people is that the personal is political. There is a bigger, you know, it's not just me and you as two individuals. So that we can, when we come together, we have a synergy that we cannot create by ourselves. That's that's the that one for me is like a real stoicism in a crux. Perhaps for those who are unfamiliar with Stoicism in general, I think that was a good modern interpretation and you gave some good examples there of how it could fit into some aspects of sustainability. Where does the philosophy come from, from maybe this is not the right term, but the ancient world? Yeah, I think it is the right term. I mean, it's, it's an ancient Greek-Roman philosophy. It comes from Dino Sitium, who was born in Cyprus. And actually, he was an, he's an interesting character. He was a merchant. And he was trying to sell the most expensive dye that you can you could sell, the purple dye that the that the uh, Roman wealthy, Roman elite would would show would dye on their on their clothes to show that they had money. It was the blood of the sea snake. And he's he's sitting in his boat, and the boat you know gets destroyed in the storm. His dye literally gets washed into the sea. He has no money. He has nothing. He's probably you know borrowed money to get that dye and bring it across the sea and that's gone everything there's no insurance back then so the guy's like literally destitute in athens going wait a minute i'm not i'm not in my homeland i have no money to board a ship back i had the most expensive dye in the world which means he had capital at the time i have nothing how am i ever going to pay these people back they're probably going to kill me what do i do so he goes and sees the oracle of delphi and says oh my gosh my life is over what do i do and she says you know Go and die your basically go and die your mind uh, go and die your mind with that the wisdom of the old, and he's like, what does that mean? And he 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 takes it on to mean that he should go and study things like Socrates to know what really matters in life. It obviously wasn't his diet because his diet's gone. So if that mattered to him, he's got no life left. He has to recalibrate completely, and so he decides to start well to go and study, and he studies for a long, long time. And then decides, okay, I want to set up my own school. And he, he calls it <clears throat> Stoicism because, well, they call it Stoicism because he walked up and down a porch and said, okay, I want to tell you about, I want to tell you about philosophy. But he used to march up and down quite quickly. He used to be quite against people just lingering. So he's like, if you want to hear me, hear me. If not, go away. So he would literally march up and down in front of a painted porch with like a, loads of paintings of depicting like Greek heroes and wartime. And he would say, look, you know, there is something so much more important. It's not about money. It's about understanding who you are. It's about knowing about justice, about knowing how it is to be self-controlled. It's about building your wisdom. And he would just literally march up and down and, and talk to anybody who would listen and really wanted to listen. The, the interesting thing is that he was actually quite anarchist. And a lot of sto modern Stoics, uh, contemporary Stoics, so Stoics that practice in the modern period, forget that. He said, like, you didn't need rules. He said you didn't need temples. He said you didn't need religion if you knew who you were and you knew what was right. He said, that's not necessary. We don't need those things. All we need to know is who we are and what we should do, what our role is in society. 
So start to really start with who are you, Stefan? What is important to you? What matters? And once you know that, okay, what's your role? So your role today is a podcast host. What does that mean you should do? We could do a podcast about anything. But you, you would say, no, I have a conviction. You know, the world is, is being lost because people don't control their own minds. Yours starts with the mind. So, okay, you know, a philosophy example, but I want my readers to, uh, or my listeners to understand that they really have to understand who they are to have the conviction that they need to fight climate injustice. If you don't know who you are, how can you do it? If you don't know why wisdom is important, how would you seek it? If you don't know that justice is fundamental to your very well-being, then when things get tough, you'll be like, oh, okay, that wasn't fair. That was really unfair. I'm really sad about that. But, you know, it's just easier to watch TV. So he was saying, if you really, really understood who you are and you walked with it, you actually took it upon yourself to keep going with that, to, to never give up in finding who you are and what it meant for society, that was way how it would bring change. And I don't mean it in a self-help way, like self-help way of, oh, I need to make myself better so I can be a better employee and make more money. It was like, he said, no, I want you to be a better person so you become a better citizen. It was all about being a better citizen. Yes, and through being a better citizen, you will be a better worker. Of course you will. But it's not, it's not about you. All the self-improvements that you can make should be for society. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that personally, but also uh, within the work on sustainability is, you know, how should we live? And I've been thinking about, you know, I've come to this question myself only in the recent years, you know, thinking more and more about how we should live and how you should be. And I was I was wondering why, you know, I was wondering why do you kind of come to this a little bit later, um, or at least for me personally. And I, and I was thinking back about the education system and how there's not a lot of training for looking at those mm -hmm. questions to look within. And I think that's, you know, partly the reason why you see a lot now, you know, kind of a, a resurge of meditation, mindfulness practice, stoicism coming in there, the, the, the some of the tenets of ancient philosophical principles um, or non-religious approaches, if, if you want to say it like this, um, coming back because it's kind of helping people answer the why question, you know, why should we live? How should we live? Which we don't really have in the modern education system through childhood when you think of K through 12 uh, or high school or, or even in, in universities. You, you, I mean, you can study philosophy and you can study these things in various universities, but it's not part of, uh, for example, STEM education. Correct. And yeah, I would be interested to hear your perspective on where you think we lost that, you know, through human development over time. I mean, these principles are fairly old. Um, we often find ourselves revisiting texts which are, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years old, these core principles, but somewhere along the way, we've, we've lost that, that kind of inner reflection about the why questions of how we should live. And as you said, it's yeah. very much an individual focus, um, and sustainability as a broad concept is very much a, the, as broadest concept you can get away from the individual, right? Somehow it's, it's all yes. encompassing. And so you have this, this kind of connection between the fact that we need to look in to solve the bigger problem. And yeah, I would be interested to hear your perspective on one, why we've lost that, you know, in society to train individuals to think like this. And then how do we, how does it actually help bridge that gap by, by focusing on yourself? You can help the broader issue. I mean, you have to look at the openings of modern education. What was it serving? I'm not talking about in the churches where people, you know, wanted you to get closer to God. I'm talking about the industry, the factories. Factories didn't care what you valued. Right. If you go, I'm talking about Victorian period. I'm not talking about every single uh, version of education. I'm talking about the British standard Victorian education, which unfortunately, or fortunately, it's a bit of both, has then replicated across much of the Western world, if not all the world now. They didn't care what you valued. <laughs> Let's be honest. They wanted you, Stefan, to work efficiently. Because do your job, don't ask questions. If you ask questions, <laughs> That you are not doing your job properly. Why should you ask questions? That's just wasting time. We want efficiency. This is why science, again, it's about efficiency. Values are difficult. I have to, if I have to sit and contemplate for the rest of my life how to be a better person, that's not very efficient from a purely scientific mathematical perspective, is it? And in Stoicism, or even Aristotle said that the happy man is the man in the graveyard. Right? So the happy person, the one who's died in the sense that they have worked all their life to be more just, to be more courageous, to be more to be more wise, right? To be more self-controlled. It's not like oh yeah, I suddenly get you know most people. We have we have some ideal called the sage, where the sage is the perfect being, 
not in terms of a God sense, but in terms of being just, courageous, wise, self-controlled. But most of us, as in 99.9% of us, are just not going to get there. So we, every day we make an adjustment. Okay, was I just? Was I fair with my husband, my wife, my kids? Was I fair with my neighbor? And then you ask yourself those questions. That's not an efficient, that's not an efficient way of doing something if I value production and I value mass production, which is consumerism, right? That's, that's the, the tools that under, underlie this ability to consume more and more and more. So then I have a vested interest. I have goods. I want you, to, I want, I need to produce them. I need you to be efficient and I need to sell them. So if I tell you that happiness is not contemplating who you are and what you mean, uh, what you mean to yourself and to society and tell you that happiness is buying this stuff that I just made, you can see now I've made a perfectly nice virtuous cycle for me, virtuous in the non-strike sense. You are supposed to be good at production. I educate you just to produce what I need and then tell you that what you need is what I produce. So you go and spend your wages and you buy the thing I made. You see this, this wonderful cycle that we're still trapped in. If I tell you, Stefan, did you really need that? Do you really need it? Does it align with your values? And wait a minute, I've just broken my control over you as a, as a, as an employer. Now, I'm not, I'm not judging anybody in the Victorian period. That's not my point. It doesn't really matter how they, how they saw it. They had their own reasons and some of them were very good. They wanted to bring a standard education. You can't give, you know, mass education to people with the resources they had at the time, the knowledge they had and bring it up to the level we have today. I don't mind, I'm not worried about what happened then. What I'm worried is about we're continuing this education level. We're telling kids and adults that if they have a, if they have a Ferrari or a Tesla these days, a Tesla on the drive, they're sustainable, they've made it, it's brilliant, they're doing good for society because look at that electric car. They're not asking, well, what happens if we, instead of thinking about Teslas, we actually thought about, can't we improve the bus service? That's actually a really more efficient way of you know bringing people together and transporting them together with almost zero emissions for a little bit of space but we're not asking those questions because they're more difficult and then we have to then you have a whole sort of system that i've just well very simply described that has a vested interest in not letting you think too much that's why i said this is the problem with self-help that it just talks about me, myself, and I, which is one of the things I'm writing a book about, how to use self-help for societal transformation. What is the use of helping yourself if it doesn't result in you being a better citizen, a better British person, a better German, and eventually, hopefully, that's the goal, a world citizen? Those are difficult questions, but people don't want to... Don't want even you, they don't want to ask you them because they don't want you to think about it. Two points there. I mean, one is they have the self-help. There has to be a why to the self-help. It, you know, it has to be a, a personal reason, which is, is also for the greater good to realize that you need to help yourself to help to help others. And and the other was, you know, it's not the main criticism which, which you brought up is, you know, not to criticize necessarily the origins. I mean, it's hard for us to understand the context of what was going on in, mm-hmm. um, in the past, but to to really kind of focus on you know, we have the opportunity to change these systems now and, and to push for those types of change. And we know that that change, you know, in many cases needs to happen or it should happen. Um, it must and to, happen. And it must happen um, in many cases. Um, and, and to focus really on that. Um, I think that's that's interesting then to shift over to, you know, what is your, when you think about sustainability, it, it's, you know, there's not really a, a fixed concept. There's There's a lot of documents out there which have provided great examples and great metaphors for what sustainability can be but it is a normative concept so there are different ways that people view it how do you see it in your work and then how do, how does that link up to those individual aspects of stoicism for an individual person in connecting to the those broader goals or how you see sustainability so sustainability in, in a stoic sense is about obligations there are no sort of human rights quote unquote in stoicism you don't have, a, for example, you don't necessarily, under a stoic, purely straight from it, have a right to life because suicide in, in stoicism is not a bad thing. It's the reason behind uh, your committing of suicide. So a lot of people talk about stoicism, like they ask me, what would a stoic do? It's like, well, it depends who you are. What's your job? Stephen, what's your job? Because that depends, you know, my answer depends on, are you a father? Do you have a job? Do you live in Germany or do you live in Africa? Who's your neighbor? And so Stoicism is not interested, I told you that it was quite anarchist in the sense that then we're not interested in the laws. We're interested in who makes them. 
if, if the lawmakers are just, if the judges are just, if the politicians are for the people, the laws obviously will, will can't, you know, if they're coming from just people, they will be just. The problem is, is we focus on, in, in, my, in my opinion, I think the problem is that we focus so much on the law and not the people that we allow to make them. So for me, sustainable, sorry, did you, you want to ask a question? Uh, yeah, well, one, is, it seems to me that, you know, that you have these four general principles, which you outlined before, and then a lot of the, a lot of the focus on modern thinking is to get towards an outcome. And then mm. it what, what, what you say there is that it's more about the process, right? It's more about understanding really? what's, what's the difference or how do you connect the, the four principles to the outcome? And then what's in between here is actually what we want to focus on. Does that make sense? Is that, how, is that the way that you think about it? Yeah. I can't control the outcome. Like in Stoicism, so you can only control your thoughts, your actions, and your attitude. That's why I say there's no self-made man, because everyone can only control their thoughts, their actions, and their attitude. If we understand that, I, you understand that you only control those things, then we fail to understand that other people who are very wealthy also only control those three things. So if they're very wealthy, it's not necessarily because of what they did. But because we always concentrate on outcomes, which we cannot control instead of the process, you know, you, when we incentive, if I want to incentivize your behavior, the problem is that I reward you when you do something for me. So for example, if I want to incentivize sales, I might only reward you if you come with me, for, so for example, you sell a million cups. But if I don't tell you something about the process, you don't care if you have to steal, cheat, lie, because I'm incentivizing the outcome. If I said to you, Stefan, I want your team to be really loyal to you and work together and you be loyal to them. And I want the team to be happy. I want them to grow. I want them to be well-trained. And of course, I want to sell cups. If I put in the right ingredients, we will sell cups because I've just put the prerequisites to make that happen. And if it doesn't happen, I say, okay, did you get there nearly? Yeah, I did. I just need another quarter. I just need, I just need another month. I'll get to the million cups. We got good training programs. You know, our, our, the mothers and fathers have, you know, paternity and maternity leave. They're really happy. They work hard from home. They're putting in extra nights because I gave one a day off on Monday because their kid was sick. They're completely happy. Yeah, brilliant. I want you to put the team first. Get to the million if you can, but put the team first. What in, in sustainability, we're making the same mistake that economics are making. We're focusing on the outcome. We can't control the outcome, but if we focus on the process and we trust in the process, then the outcome will happen. Like as a parent, you know that you can't force your kid to be good at maths. I want you to be good at maths. I know your kids are very young, but imagine that's the case. They're three years old and you want them to be excellent at algebra. Well, if you incentivize their results and all the process, they will lie to you. They really will. They go, Dad, yeah, I did it. I did it. I promise. You know, they're sitting there with the answers there because you only incentivize the result. So this is the problem. I think in sustainability, we've been pulled into that economic or business way of thinking that the results matter. Of course they matter, but the process is just as important, if not, in my opinion, in the historic opinion, more important. Because I think, of course, we, we have to have goals and we have to have outcomes which we desired. But often you kind of you can get sucked into thinking, you know, that that outcome or the indicator of that outcome becomes the goal. That That's something we've talked about with a few guests on the podcast before that when the in, when the indicator becomes the goal you've lost the reason why you're mm. trying to achieve the outcome uh, and you've kind of lost track of, of the process through which it's made and i like right. that i like that summary that if you focus on the process then your goals will come naturally yeah and if they don't you will you you will change the process exactly if you if you understand the reason why you're doing the process then you don't have to question what the outcome will be because you know the way that you did it was the correct way of, of going about that correct yeah, I think that makes me think about things like the sustainable development goals, you know, which we have to have, I mean, it could be argued, but I think, you know, it's good to have these goals where we want to aim towards. And I know there's many people working on the process through implementation, but I think you can also get lost in, well, how do we implement and how should we or why should we implement a lot of right. these goals? Um, and those might be taken as fundamental assumptions, but I think the role of philosophy and sustainability can really help us answer the why and the how we should go about doing those things um, and perhaps aid in the process. I mean, you have to have some sort of efficiency <laughs> at the global level when you're, when you're thinking about things like the sustainable development goals. But in the integration of philosophy, I think, is, is, 
a missing component when we think about interdisciplinarity we, we we don't often think about things like philosophy to come into thinking about social sciences or the natural sciences or some of the stem fields uh, when we think about inter interdisciplinary thinking within the science system i want i want to revisit again because you mentioned in the beginning that uh science itself and, and the types of questions we ask within different disciplines you gave the example of economics um, are often structured around normative choices Mm. Um, and I would be interested to hear your reflection about stoicism within the science system, you know, it, but taking more of a stoic perspective about why we ask certain questions or why certain disciplines um, have evolved in the way that they do. And, and how can taking a stoic perspective help shape the, the system of science and the system of knowledge production, perhaps in, in a better way? And that it would also be a normative, you know, that you'd have to make the normative assumption that we should try to improve the science system from that perspective, right? <laughs> of course. I mean, yeah, I'm not against goals. I think goals are, you know, as you're right, they're absolutely important. I'm not against science. Of course, that's my, that's my bread and butter as well. But I do think, I, I, no, for example, let's just take an academic example. Who's in academia? Who isn't in academia? So what voices are being heard and what voices are not being heard? And I don't just mean science. I mean, all, even in philosophy, it's predominantly male, white, which is a problem, I think. Uh, and in, in fact, in all the humanities, philosophy is predominantly male. It is noticeably male. So if the ideas are not, you know, ideas from other people are not coming forward and the questions are not being asked, then the things that we answer, the things that we fund are skewed, which of course they are. I don't have the issue with that. I have the issue that we don't question if they are. You know, that, that's my problem. I'm not, I don't have the issue with having goals. I have an issue about assuming that the goal is the end game and not the process. Standard development goals, for example, are actually contradictory. We all know that. So, okay, they're contradictory. Don't have an issue with that. Do we know they're contradictory? Did we know when we wrote them? Maybe we did. Maybe we had good reasons. As long as, to me, you can justify those reasons rationally and reasonably. Rationally, I don't mean very coldly. I mean, looking at, again, from a stoic perspective, you know, is this courageous? Is this just? Is this self-controlled? Is this wise? So in academia, if we exclude people, then we exclude certain types of knowledge. If we reward white middle-class straight men, then the types of knowledge that they produce we're also rewarding. Again, that may be good or bad, depends. If we don't ask those questions, then we get a very skewed reality of what is rewarded. If you reward with funding, for example, certain types of science, and then say to others, no, there's no money for you, then we're talking about values because we live in a capitalist society where money says you're worth something. Now, we can say we agree with it or we don't agree with it. But if you pay someone minimum wage, there's a statement of value. If you pay someone eight million, it's a statement of value in a capitalist system. So the same is true in science in terms of grant money, uh, European Union grant money, you know, German funding, British funding, American funding, we all, you know, all those boards. What, what are we what are we promoting? So I think philosophy comes in under I'm not in terms of science I think it comes underneath and says wait a minute what are we promoting? Are we are we are we rewarding the outcomes regardless of the process? We might be we may not be every every funding board is different. Are we awarding only certain types of people funding because we consider them to be quote unquote successful? Do they have a vested interest? They may or may not. Do they have a certain perspective? Certainly. What has that? Why would they believe what they believe? Why would they say that their view is objective? How objective is it? Right. So, for example, I'd like to see in the climate change, I'd like to see climate climate breakdown funding to go towards like gender gendered issues. Is it a case that women are are affected more or less? I don't think we ask this question. Is, it, is, there, is there a racial issue? Now, we have certain research to say, yes, there are certain ethnicities that are really suffering due to climate breakdown. What are the reasons behind that? But when I start saying, oh, that's not science, that's not worth anything, that, that's, the kind of, that's the kind of conversation that even in the engineering department, go, well, why do you want to know that? Because these people matter? Like you're basically, because you're saying that you don't want to even ask the question, you're telling me, you're assuming they don't matter. Now, if you can show me for some reason that they don't matter because you say actually they don't matter because your your assumption is flawed, Kai. They not they are not suffering environmental injustice. And I've got evidence to say that. Okay, I can put my hands up and go, okay, 
But it was worth asking the question, wasn't it? It was worth checking, wasn't it? So I think it's not that I want philosophy to interfere and tell scientists this is how you do your job. I want them to ask the underlying question about funding, about publications. Who's publishing? Who are the editors? You see, these are the gatekeepers. Who are the reviewers? We don't ask those questions. Those questions, in my opinion, are undervalued. Yes, we are starting to, thankfully, in STEM, say, okay, we need more women in, in engineering. Yeah, brilliant. Agreed. But it's not just that we need certain genders to do certain jobs. We need to question, under, question the undermining assumptions for certain jobs. Why is STEM valued higher than, say, modern languages? Why should we have to, if women, for example, we need to get more women in engineering. Why? Is that because we value engineering? Is that because the money's in engineering? Now, I'm just asking you questions, right? It's easy for me to ask them. But if we're saying we need more women in engineering, we're saying we value engineering and we want women to contribute. I agree. But how, what about if we should, say, value some aspects of engineering less and put more money in the humanities? No one says we need more women in the humanities. <laughs> I have not. Other than philosophy, never heard it. Why? Because there are predominantly women in the humanities. What is the problem with that? Not much until you realise the unreasonable funding in relative terms. How much funding humanities gets and how much money engineering gets. I would argue quite strongly that we may not need as many women in engineering if we funded humanities fairly. Now, again, someone would have to research and see if I'm, I'm right in asking that question. But you see, if we push engineering, we say we value engineering and we don't value humanities where women happen to be. So we want more women to be engineers, but we don't want to reward the women who have showed that they're very successful in humanities. If we don't ask those questions, then we're not asking ourselves what we value. And then we end up going in a direction, an outcome, because we're measuring the outcome that we don't actually want. I don't know if that makes sense to you, Stefan, or if you've ever thought about it that way. Yeah, you give a couple of examples where you can you can see the normativity in scientific in the structural biases for, for, in the mm. science system. If you want to think of it like this, that there in fact are structural biases in the science system, and that we we need ways in which we can ask questions and and not be criticized for asking mm. just just asking the question and saying is this important? We don't know if it's important, but it might be important. Um, and to have the freedom to ask those types of questions. And I think it, it gets to a fundamental aspect of interdisciplinarity, which we've also talked about on the podcast, is a, a lot of it's just about respect for the other disciplines, that there's something to be learned there. Um, and I think you, you would see the same with philosophy, bringing that into, into other disciplines, that there's a respect in the types of questions that philosophy would answer about the science system and the structural biases that it might, might have. And the outcomes that it might generate and how that affects the type of knowledge in the end which is produced i was reading an article um a text article uh, that you had done an interview with the daily stoic and you talked about uh, open access publications for example uh, as one thing um which you know stoic philosophy you might be able to to guide us towards making more um just choices about how we share and distribute knowledge and open access was one of those things in in the science system what is there any other things which you could think specifically within the science system other than open access, where you you could take one of the, the core principles of Stoic philosophy and say, you know, this should probably be how we should question it or change it yeah. in some way. I think I've, I've kind of alluded to transparency and who we employ. Just transparency. How many women do you employ? What, what salary do you give them? Right? Because people say, oh, it's because they're worth more, because they work higher. No, it's because they don't feel that they're able to negotiate a higher price. That is a salary. A salary, it can be awarded to you, and you may not have no say in negotiation, but if you have a say, then your ability to negotiate actually stands out more about how much you earn than anything else. Are women able, to, do they feel able to negotiate? I mean, I can't answer that question. I'm not a woman myself, but I can, I can ask it. So I, I think I would like to see transparency in how we employ people in academia, particularly when it's public money, particularly. I'd like to see how, you know, researchers do they, for example, uh, if women, I, I know this, that in economics, if women uh, collaborate with men, as in they co-author, they are not viewed as successful in their own right. That is despicable. In fact, they say that the only way for women to get ahead in economics, to get tenor, is to either uh, write by themselves or write with only women. I mean, that's insanity. <laughs> 
And this is the problem that if, and I've, I've actually done this as a test, not in terms of gender, but in terms of um, country. So when I am the when I am the corresponding author, my name being quite British, quite not so much, but at least European, I get a better I, uh, sort of German British, like I said, um, I get a better response than when my co-authors are the corresponding author, and I am the, in the same paper. We've done a test where if I'm the corresponding author. The reviewers are much more positive. They don't criticize the English, right? And I've written it, so I'm a native speaker. I'm not saying the best, but it's definitely a native speaker. And then we put the corresponding author as one of my colleagues who has a Spanish-sounding name. We then get questions from the reviewer about how good the English. We think you should get the work read by a native speaker. And I sit there and laugh because I am a native speaker. I'm like, I know the difference between a native speaker and a non-native speaker. So how is it in exactly the same paper? If I, I am the corresponding author, we don't get those kind of questions. We're more likely to be seen as uh, favored in that peer review than if my colleagues who don't have a German or British, that we get rejected more. And now, we, unfortunately, I've had to have the personal policy of putting my name as corresponding author on everything, even if I'm not the lead author, because the results favor our publications. Right. Yeah, that's that. I had Harini Nagendra on the podcast um recently as well and she she's from india and and she had the same anecdotal experience with with english and exactly as you describe it that it makes me think you know how do we in stoic philosophy how does that kind of spread throughout society because if you take if you if you think that the the principles itself are very much an individualistic you know mm -hmm. you have to adopt those principles yourself and you have to take the the ownership for taking such a perspective how does stoicism then spread if, if it's all about looking inward how does it then kind of distribute amongst people um if you don't have kind of like you know a lot of other religions or a lot of other ways of thinking there there's there's a lot of activism towards spreading certain types of belief does that does that happen within stoicism i mean there's no way I should reason it shouldn't i mean the key term here is called role model mm -hmm. leading by example so the key the key term here is role model when you were a kid you didn't do things because your parents just told you to or you should do this you did because you saw your parents do it Mm -hmm. If you see me and you, for example, silly example, someone dropped one euro out of their pocket relatively recently and I ran down the road and gave it back to them. And I had no reason to do that. I could just keep it, right? No reason outside if, if I'm only interested in my self-interest, right? And my friend who was with me said, you know what? I can trust you with my money because if you're willing to run to catch a person down the street and give him back his euro, then I know that I can lend you money. You're going to give it back to me. I didn't say anything. I even, you know, for me, it was the right thing to do. Like, if enough of us do the right thing and we take courage and say, no, I'm going to stand up. If you see me standing up against, you know, tyranny and you say, why did you do it? I think it's the right thing to do. Why do you think that? I'm a stoic. And I tell you about the four virtues. Then you go, actually, I don't mind stoicism. Sounds quite interesting. So I think the key is role models. I, I don't see it any different to anything else. The reason why we people are wanting to be more, you know, wealthy and, you know, have this nice life. It's, they, it's not only just because of the media, they see these role models that, like in the self-help books. Again, I'm not naming names because I don't want to tell their story. But they see these stories and they want to emulate them, which is why when I wrote, when I write my book, I'm refusing to put negative stories in the book because by doing that, I'm glorifying somebody. Stoicism is that, it's like, have a role model. If I'm, you know, if I'm your father and I'm stoic and you say, well, my father was a fair man. When he got angry, he, he was really upset because he said, there is no place for anger. There's no place for anger. There's a place for being assertive, but no place for anger. Even if you're upset, even if there's an injustice, they say, well, anger doesn't serve you. Doesn't serve you. So if I say there's no place for anger, so yeah, when my father was an angry man, he felt really bad. He, you know, he repented for one of a better word. He said, there's no place for it. I have no excuse for it. I'm sorry, son. I should never have said that to you. How many parents don't say to their kids, I'm sorry? You know, I'm not saying it every time, but there are a lot of adults who say, well, I told you so, therefore. If I say, look, I'm telling you this because I believe this, then you're more likely as my son to become a stoic. If you see me running down the road and you're my friend, you're more likely to go, well, he's a stoic. That's a good, he's a good guy. I think it's to do with being, having a role model and telling a different narrative. So I don't see it spreading in any different way than anything else. Why, why do we think, for example, why do we think German engineering is so good? Like, I don't live in Germany, but I was looking at Haiti yesterday electric heat, because I, I have no central heating in Portugal, and I have no insulation. And we have to pay double for German goods than you. Like, literally, I have to pay 80 euros for heat I can get in Germany for 37. 
Why? Because in Portugal, we believe German is good. So we're willing to pay double what you guys pay for the same thing. And it didn't really travel that far, you see? It's not just because engineering happens to be good in Germany. It's because I believe that engineering is good in Germany. And then that's a virtuous cycle because then your engineers believe they are good. And when they are not good, they feel bad. and go, wait a minute, I'm German. I should be good. You know, so I, I don't see stoicism spreading in any way different to any other idea. And of course, in stoicism, we're not supposed to evangelize. We're not supposed to force you, I know, I want you, you know, need to believe this because if we don't, if you don't believe me, Stefan, we're not going to have sustainable development. No, if you agree with what I said to you in this podcast, you said, I get why health and wealth and fame are not essential to my habits. And I agree with you, Kai, that courage, justice, self-control, and wisdom is essential. Then that doesn't necessarily make you stoic, but it does make you say, oh, I want to know more about stoicism. So I don't see any difference. It's just like any other idea. It's, it's, it's living by example, doing the right thing for the right reason and allowing yourself the opportunity to come on podcasts or do other things that tell a different story, that tell a different narrative and then asking people make up your, make up your own mind. Yeah. I like that aspect of, of letting people make up their own mind is critical. Um, it makes me think that, you know, as we see kind of a bit of a loss of, of, re of religion, kind of mainstream religion guiding moral principles. I think especially in the upcoming generations, certainly my generation, millennials are coming through. I mean, we kind of see a general loss of following religious principles, which have throughout history guided morality. Mm -hmm. And I think now we've come to a space where we are not a lot of people, um, especially in the sustainability academic sphere are not, you know, they've They've left those ideas behind religious guiding morality, but we haven't necessarily picked something up instead mm. uh, to replace those principles of how we should act to ask the why question. That makes me think, you know, what are some of those practices and stoicism of daily practices or things that people can do to help them think about some of these core values, you know? Many religions have different things that you do on a daily basis or a weekly basis or certain rituals that help you understand the values and integrate them into a daily practice, for example. Mm. What does stoicism have in that regard? It's sense of, of, of meditating. Not meditating to empty your mind. That's another stoic practice. But meditating is saying, for example, what can I do today to make the world more just? Because mm. people go, oh, it's not in my control. Oh, you know, the world system. What can you do? What can you do? I'm not talking about the world system. That's beyond your control. Okay. Doesn't mean you can't vote. Doesn't mean you have a thing. But what can you do today? Like, you know, I gave the example, I think, on e you know, via email, I realized that wet wipes were made of plastic and I had to remove them from my life. Yeah. You know, was that difficult? No, but I was shocked. So I said, okay, no more wet wipes. So with my money, I don't feel that, that sector anymore. I, I spend my time telling people, okay, they're going to tell you it's biodegradable. It is biodegradable under conditions that don't exist. Like that's what they do. They do tests where it's just not, it's just not natural conditions. It's not going to happen. So first thing as a story is to ask yourself, what can I do today to be more just? Now you might not be able to do anything. You might be really sick. The answer is nothing. I'm really sick. I have the flu. I'm not going to, well, okay, nothing. Okay. What about tomorrow? What do you think you'll be able to do tomorrow? Well, I can't do anything. I'm not in a position to do anything. Okay, how can you put yourself in? You keep asking yourself the question until it's like that kid who says, why, why, why? Until you come to that natural end and they, they have the answer that they want. Okay, so I can't do anything. I'm not in a position. I'm not, I'm not a politician. I can't change the laws. Okay, do you want to change the laws? Is that how you want to target sustainability? Because it may not be the way forward for you. I personally don't want to change the laws. I want to change people's minds. I just told you that a law doesn't matter to me. It's who puts the laws in place. So I wouldn't dedicate my life to changing the laws. I want to dedicate my life to changing the lawmakers. So then I said the best way I can do that is to be, you know, a lecturer who researches, who spends, you know, his early morning on a podcast because it's the right thing to do. Because sitting in an office isn't going to change the world. You know, nobody's going to come read my papers and go, oh, Kai, we love you. Right. <laughs> Look at you. So famous and wonderful. Let me give you a professorship. I'm not interested in that. I, if you read my papers, it's because there's something I said that triggered you. It triggered your desire to do something more. I don't want the whole world to be stoic. That's nothing to do with me. What I want them to think is, how can I be better? So that's the meditation, the consistent, coherent questioning of what you can do. And I don't mean always more. People say, so you want me to do more? I actually said to someone, do less. Like, you're doing so many things that you're not even spending time with your kids. Sustainability starts at home. If you're doing so much stuff that your kids don't see you, you failed as a parent. And if you follow the parent and stoicism says, 
as there's only two parents, typically, there might be three or four, but normally there's two, that you have a really strong responsibility. You have an obligation. I told you we don't have rights. We have obligations. As a parent, I'm sorry, your number one obligation is to make sure your kid is sustainable, <laughs> is to make sure that they, you know, they put things in the bin when they need to, and you explain to them that there is no such thing as a way. We don't throw things away. There is no away. So you explain to your kid, I don't buy you so many Christmas presents or Santa doesn't get you so many because I don't like the packaging. If you don't do that as a parent, doesn't matter all the other things you're going to do. You've just affected a kid who's going to make all those bigger changes. So, yes, you come back at home. I've told people, go home, spend time with your kid. They're two. I can't talk to them about sustainability. Play with them. If you don't play with them, they won't listen to you. Right? So people always want this, like, more, more, more. Sometimes it's like, do less. Ask yourself, what's my role? So your role is a father. Your role is a German citizen. Your role is a podcaster. Your role is a researcher. We all have many roles, but in each of your roles, what is your job? And you ask yourself the question. For me, your most fundamental one is being a human being. So be a human being to as many people as you can. Be nice to them. Kind. Then your second role for me is being a parent. Sorry, like as much as I think your job is important, being a parent in stoicism is more important. So you say, okay, should I be spending all this time in the office and spending no time with my kid? No, because then you fail to give that person the opportunity to be sustainable in their own right. So that's one thing that we do. The other one is is to reflect on what is the worst thing that can happen to me. Like it sounds really dramatic. It kind of is in a way. We say, okay, if I'm courageous, if I stand up to this awful boss, what's the worst thing that can happen to me? And it might be terrible. And you might have to be like, well, I've got a kid. I can't possibly do that. So I can't stand up in the office. Because sometimes you just cannot. Like you, there's conflict there. And so, okay, how can I help this woman? This woman's been treated really badly by this man. How can I help her? What can I do? And you might say to your wife, for example, can you come out? Can we take her out for dinner? I don't want to take her out for dinner on my own because it would be inappropriate maybe. Can we take her out for dinner? She really deserves to have a dinner. And you just take her out and you do some some active kindness, again, paying it forward a little bit. So you might say, okay, what's the worst case scenario? And you envision it. And I would say, of course, if you have kids, you really have to think carefully about whether you're going to stand up, how you're going to stand up. And, you know, is it the best solution? Because it might be in my case, because the way I can shape an argument, it's very difficult when you do philosophy to argue against me and say uh, in a logic, in a logical manner, because I've been trained to, okay, that's illogical what you're saying. But then it also depends on your bosses. Maybe your boss doesn't value whether you tell them you're being really illogical. Maybe they hate you for it. So again, it's, it's knowing who you are, playing to your strength, knowing your weakness, Knowing that the only, you know, some people think the only thing you can do is be, be really, you know, an activist, very strongly an activist. Like, well, maybe you could just make tea for the activists. Maybe you could just sit out, shop, and literally give lemonade and tea to these people who are cold standing out there. You don't have to have the placard. You can be the tea man or the tea lady. Like, you, that is a really important job when you have like 10,000 volunteers that are really thirsty to give tea, at least 10, 10, 20 of them. And that's why I try to encourage people, like, look at who you are, look at what you do. And try to think, okay, can I do more? Should I do less? Because the answer isn't always do more, which is not very popular in the self-help world, but that's what it is. Yeah, you know, we spend a lot of time worrying about things that never happen. And yeah, I think the asking the, what's the worst possible outcome that would happen to me? And then thinking about how you would react in that worst possible outcome often mm. tampers down the fear um, because it's very unlikely that that worst possible outcome would actually happen and then it kind of gives you a bit of personal or, find, or, find, or finding you finding yourself an alternative even okay let's imagine we really think you would get fired if you call your boss out in private not in public unless it's like crazy and you have to you then i said that's when you start saying okay that is a, i can't have that what that's why i said how many people then think take the next step and go okay i can't stand up for this woman at work it really would like lose my job and my kid i'm a single father i, I just cannot lose my job what is it you can do to help this woman have a nicer life and, and support her. And I told you, okay, maybe not going out of her for dinner because she might get the wrong idea because she's feeling vulnerable and she might not. But asking your wife, could you come with me? Like, could you do me a favor? My wife and I would like to invite you for dinner. Would you like to come? And she feels like no one cares about her. Like she might think no one cares about me. No one cares about what I value. No one's listening to me. Sustainability to me is also about, you know, looking out who's your neighbor. Do they need help? We forget that in the big scheme of things like the environment, oh no, we must save the environment. Yes, but how do we save the environment? You ha let's imagine you have a dinner with this lady and your wife. 
and she meets your kid. She's like, oh, that's great. I love it. And you go, okay, did you know that wet wipes are really bad? No, I didn't. I use them all the time. <laughs> and she now she values your opinion because you value her. And then she's like, then she goes on a crusade against wet wipes and disposable disposable nappies. And she becomes like the great you know, advocate for uh, reusable nappies. And she tells all her female friends that they shouldn't be using disposable nappies if they can help it, unless they have an emergency or they're traveling or something, because it's never, never extreme, never, ever. And she becomes this great advocate. You know, and we forget that. We're like, no, I need to be an activist. I need to be the next, next Greta Thunberg. Greta Thunberg has made it very clear that she is pretty unique. She has a very specific set of skills that make her ideal for what she's doing. And she's fantastic. And I, and I love that lady. I can't do it. I just cannot do what she does. I'm just not able to do it. But then she's not able to do what I can do. And I'm not able to, I can't run a podcast. I just, I don't know how you can, can't even imagine that. It's just beyond my skill set. But you see what I mean? Like if we just touch the life of someone, you know, appropriately, who, but, you know, next to us and, and show love, compassion and a humanity. That's why I said your first role in stoicism is to be a human to as many people as you can. Then you don't know the ripple effect of that. We, again, we champion the narratives of selfish individuals, which is why I said I will not mention names of people because we probably spend a lot of time talking about certain people, uh, you know, presidents and things like that. And then in 20 years' time, when that president is thankfully long gone and dead, their echo lives on and we glorify them because we say, yeah, but we should never do that again. Yes, we should learn. Yes, there is this importance of learning from that mistake. There's a difference between learning from mistake and telling people, oh, look what they tweeted today. 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 And responding to their echo chamber and saying, okay, I know, they're an idiot. <laughs> they're, they're I only read four tweets. I don't need a hundred tweets. I don't need to see what they read. No, last week they're an idiot. This week they're an idiot. I'm not going to react to what they're doing. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead with my goal and my process. And I think that we've lost that. On, particularly on the left, we're basically combating like a tennis match instead of saying, we've got good ideas of our own. The right wing has some really good ideas too. We have these ideas. But because we're so busy like hitting back these horrible shots, some of them, some of them were very gentle, but some of them were pretty nasty. We're like, we're then defining ourselves based on what we're not. That's like a person saying, what? I am, I'm, I'm not gay. That's my identity. I'm not gay. I said, you're straight. No, I'm just not gay. So you're defining yourself for what you're not. It's ridiculous. And the left, but the left wing is doing that. We're doing that on a collective, even in the environmental world. Oh, well, we don't agree with that economics. But okay, what do we agree with? What, you know, where can we find some kind of common ground? I mean, as a stoic, I end up fighting, you know, people's ignorance all the time. But for example, I've had people who are flat earthers come up to me and say, you're crazy. You want, literally, you're crazy. I can't believe it's sustainable development. The first thing I say to, this, to these flat earthers, and it's not more, it's more than once, by the way, are you stoic? He's like, yeah. I'm like, friend, we're on the same side. He's like, we are? I said, if you're stoic and I'm stoic, we're on the same team. Oh, cool. Do you know, we had such, a, it was like, it was crazy. It was like, you know, one of those times again, I should have been using this a long time ago. And once the, he realized we were on the same side, he was like talking about the environment and that we should take care of like cats and dogs and like, Okay, not quite what I was saying, but you know that's one step nearer to where I was trying to bring him than if I said you're an idiot. Everybody else in the the Facebook group was saying he was an idiot, which may or may not be true. All right, he may have certain ideas that are really stupid, but if you tell him he's an idiot, you're telling him what he's used to hearing. If you come around and go, actually, we're on the same side. Who do you think he's going to listen to? I mean, the reason why he's a flat earther is because he doesn't think much. It's not it's not difficult to persuade such a person, is it? I think that's what we need to do in the environment. We need to, instead of saying, oh, you need to be greener, for example, I'm vegetarian, people say, you should be vegan. Well, I am progressing in that direction, but I live in Portugal. Like, do you know how hard it is to be vegetarian in Portugal? I'm not in Germany. <laughs> it's really hard. Um, and so you say to people, instead of telling me I should be vegan, why don't you cook me a vegan meal? I'll cook you when you're, when you're here. Why don't you show me a restaurant that's vegan? And I think that's what we need to do. We have to have, be more human to each other. Because that is how sustainability gets built, not through this this, this um, Twitter war or something similar. Yeah, I think so. I think there's an important point there that 
environmental or sustainability is not synonymous with environmentalism. Environmental environmentalism is necessary but not sufficient for sustainability. And you know, there's this big gap there on what then do we need on top of that. And a lot, most of that comes, you know, it's community, it's it's humanism, uh, for perhaps some of the principles there. Um, to thinking about people and how they connect to each other and building relationships. And you know, I think there's a, there's a lot of focus on environmentalism within sustainability principles and it seems that stoicism and philosophy can be you know core aspects which people can look to to think about to think about that community aspect and how to guide how we should live now well kai it's been it's been super interesting to hear your your stories and and to hear your perspective is there a place where you can guide people to find more about your work to to a website or to twitter yeah stoikai.com is the website so it has i put as you've mentioned, I have tried to put everything I can in open access, even at personal cost to myself. So please take advantage of it as my efforts were in vain. Uh, and yeah, you can find me at Kai Whiting on Twitter. Kai, thanks a lot. You're welcome. Thank you for ha- very much for having me. If you enjoyed this episode of the Finding Sustainability podcast, please feel free to share it with friends, colleagues, and on social media. You can find us on Twitter at find underscore sust underscore pod, or you can visit our website www.essnetwork.net forward slash podcast. On the website, you will find a content and guest request form. Here we invite you to submit recommendations for content and guests you would like to hear on the podcast. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, and can also be streamed from our website. This podcast is part of the Environmental Social Science Network. For more information about the network and how to get involved, please visit our website, www.essnetwork.net. Thank you for supporting the podcast.